This episode of The Body Serve is brought to you by Health IQ, an insurance agency that helps health-conscious people like runners, weightlifters, vegans, and tennis players get lower rates on life insurance. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on life insurance. Go to healthiq.com/bodyserve or mention the promo code bodyserve, no the, when speaking with an agent to support the show and see if you qualify. But I don't I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. This is episode 107. My name is Jonathan. And I'm James. I feel like you were a little bit unclear at the end of that intro to the with the promo. No the means <laughs> <laughs> with the promo code. It's not The Body Serve, it's just Body Serve. Yeah, yeah, I think that was clear. Okay, maybe that's just me being uh, paranoid and stupid. Probably, yes. More stupid. <laughs> So this is our second episode of 2018. I I think this one will be a little, um, what's the word? A little quicker than the last one. Not that that was a bad thing. I'm feeling well, like 2018 is a more optimistic year for me. I don't know about all of you, but that's just the feeling I get. This time last year, there was a lot of dread in advance of the inauguration. And now I feel like ready to fight, you know? Oh, is that that's where your optimism comes from? I thought it was tennis related. Well, now now we know what's ahead of us, right? Now we know what we're dealing with. Well, the the length or brevity of this episode is totally dependent on our final segment, which we're going to be getting into the Golden Globes, and mm-hmm. we know and I expect you to have opinions and thoughts about that. <laughs> so you'll have to do a bit of self censoring if we're going to get it into a reasonable. Oh, you mean I'm going to drone on and on and on? It's possible. Yeah. Week one, we had a million events going on. I count seven different winners. The seven events, there were two titleists in Brisbane, the men and the woman. There was Shenzhen, Auckland, the woman in Auckland. There was Doha and Pune. And then there was the Hotman Cup, mm-hmm. which... Which, I mean, doesn't really count. I mean, it's still an event. There were winners. Yeah, but so, it's more fun than, than a real tournament. And folks seem to be having a whole lot of fun with that event. Yeah. Not just the players, but the press that was there. They seem to be just singing the praises of the the organizers. Uh, it seems like a, a fun way to start the year for players as well. You know, you get a little bit of the competition and the seriousness without the stakes. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit more with respect specifically to Kerber. Uh, but let, let's go through some of the winners. Where All do you right. want to start? So Simona Halep starts the year as number one and does it right. She goes to Shenzhen, wins the title, kind of reinforces the idea that I'm number one, I'm going to be here for a little while, I'm going to keep, I'm going to hold on to these points. And I don't begrudge anyone for going to a smaller tournament, like as opposed to Brisbane or Auckland. This is really just a warm up for the Australian Open, so you don't want to tax yourself too much. She beat her countrywoman Begu in the semifinals and also paired with her to win the doubles title. So it is the rare single and doubles title double in women's tennis. 
And she also beat Siniakova in the final, who I think, uh, I hope we didn't overlook this young woman. She could be one of the breakout stars of this year, really. She dragged Maria Sharapova around the court for quite a while in three sets. Or, I mean, this is really Sharapova's M.O. before she went off on her ban was the three-set thing. And most often she came through. Siniakova pounded a bunch of aces and uh, but she really sent a message, I think, to the tour. It's a great first week for her. Now, Simona is, I don't want to say embroiled, that's a pretty dramatic word, but she is in the odd position of being the number one ranked player without a clothing sponsor. This, uh, I don't know what to say. Well, before we get into that, it's a great start for Simona because she ended the year number one with a lot of people talking shit about her as number one with regards to whether she deserves it or not and coming out right away in 2018 with a flop would have been not ideal to say the (laughs) least (laughs) right and instead she comes out and she plays great tennis pretty much the entire tournament she lost a set in the final uh but that was sandwiched by i believe a bagel and a breadstick Mm. or something i mean and uh sinyakov as you said was not an opponent that folks should be taking lightly this year and so the the quality of her tennis was right up there to match her ranking to start the year which is all that she could have asked for pretty much right as to the clothing sponsor issue uh it seems to be like a a timing issue that's wrapped up in all of this as well sometime in mid-december we learned that she was leaving adidas or that the contract was to expire and it wasn't going to be renewed. And part of that was because Simona, in my opinion, rightly thinking at the time, well, hell, I'm the world number one player. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask for more money. And Adidas was like, well, you know, this is the money that we have. She's like, well, I'm going to shop around. Right. And then she shopped around. And this is like a, a, a time crunch situation at this point too, right? I imagine a lot of companies would have sorted out that stuff a while back. Uh, and so with a few weeks left to go, she couldn't find another sponsor, went back to Adidas, allegedly. And they were like, well, we have our budget filled now. Like, we don't have money for you at the moment. And so at this current moment, she's still looking for a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Presumably hoping to find one in time for the Australian Open. Because it's one thing to show up in Shenzhen without a sponsor. <laughs> and then a totally different thing to be the number one seed at the first slam of the year and be playing without a sponsor. This, to me, this is kind of the same old story of women's tennis getting lowballed by these major companies, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We saw it with Tennis TV, with Tennis Channel, and I don't know that that all is common knowledge, but the understanding that I have is that those companies, those media companies, did not offer what the WTA expected or felt that their product merited. And so now you have Simona Halep doing, I think, what makes good business sense, going around and uh, shopping for other offers and possibly, you know, using it for leverage with the company you're with, right? And it, uh, it did not work out. I will say that her mood and the way that she started the year, in spite of all these things, all this gossip going around and, and what could have been kind of an embarrassing situation... Her mood is great. She seemed to be really enjoying herself on court. And uh, I think it says a lot about her mindset 
going into this year. Mm. The thing that I've always appreciated with Simona, especially in press, and it's something that we've then turned on its head to maybe use as a negative toward her, we're guilty of that, is that she's very earnest. She's very upfront. She calls it as she sees it. Yes. She doesn't sidestep issues to paint herself in a better light with respect to her game. And so when she was asked about this in press a few days ago, she was very matter-of-fact about it. She's like, yes, this is what's happening. This is where I'm... It's okay. I'm fine. Tennis is good. You know? like <laughs> She's not... She doesn't seem to be bothered by it at all, mm-hmm. which is needed for her. You know? Like, this is not something that she should be worried about. Right. Her manager, Virginie Ruzici, I think is her manager. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, the Romanian yes. Grand Slam champ. Featured in that French Open documentary. Yes. Or as you and your family like to say, documentary. <laughs> <laughs> If me, you're if you have that Great Lake Great Lakes accent like my family and me, you I think you can relate. Let me tell you, I've heard some weird ass pronunciations. Elem- elementary, uh huh, documentary. <laughs> uh, she said, you know, I'm gonna have my manager sort that out. I'm not too concerned about it, which good for her. And the other byproduct of her winning the title and playing well is that she maintains the number one ranking. She yep. has almost a 400 point lead now. I think. Uh, over Caroline Wozniacki, who is now up to number two, which is good for the next three weeks up until the end of the Australian Open because there's a lot of different scenarios that then come into play Mm -hmm. with all those points available. So Wozniacki, speaking of, made the final of Auckland and lost to uh, just a streaking Yulia Gerges, who has now won 14 matches in a row, three titles in a row, she won to cap off last year Moscow and Zhuhai, the elite trophy. And now in the first tournament of her year, she faces off against her counterpart, the champion of the WTA finals in Singapore, and beats her. I mean, so she rises to her career high of number 12. She's had Wozniacki's number for a while. I mean, it's not totally lopsided. I think she's 5-4 and four against Caroline. When you say has her number... In that it's a bit surprising given where they have been in their careers. Yes. Not necessarily in terms of the eye test of Yulia's game, but for where she's been in her career in terms of ranking, if you weren't paying attention, you'd be surprised mm-hmm. that it's so close. Right. And Yulia was beating her back when Caroline was number one, like 2010, 2011. That's when I first started hearing about Yulia Gerges and, and seeing her powerful game. But I think... Just the matchup and the kind of the headspace doesn't really... It's not Caroline's favorite, <laughs> right? What do you mean? Um, well, I think maybe because Yulia has beaten her a bunch in the past and maybe the games just don't match up. You know, maybe it's not a, uh, a situation where Caroline is playing badly. It's just that this is a player on a hot streak who has sort of mastered your game in the past. I, I can't say one way or the other to that. <laughs> what I will say is that these were two of the best players in the second half of 2017. Oh, yeah. And they're here again to start 2018, which is not something we often see in, in recent years. Those who finished the year super strong then kind of struggle sluggishly out the gate the following year. We, we saw that with uh, Sibolkova. She's playing well currently in Sydney. She struggled after winning Singapore in 2016, and she talked about that today in press after beating Vesnina, mm. saying that she was totally wiped out, having only maybe two to three weeks total 
to turn her season over into 2017 after having all that success at the right. end of the year. Right. And it, it stayed with her and she struggled throughout the entire 2017. And whatever these two women have done, kudos to them. If they've if they have the experience to know how to plan their off season, their teams must be doing a great job and their own hard work. But here they are again competing at the highest level right away. Mm-hmm. Speaking of competing at the highest level, here we are with Alina Svitolina winning another title in Brisbane, taking out some uh, some like top competition. What's exciting about these these really busy weeks right before Australia is that you get a lot of the top players, so you get like big time matchups early on in tournaments, right? So Carlos Suarez Navarro was playing well. Svitolina beat her, Kanya, Kanta, and Pliskova. I think that's the really impressive win. Seven five seven five was able to kind of get on top of Pliskova's serve. Svitolina's return is really impressive. And then beating breakout star Assassinovich in the final. Breakout would be star. Well, let's not might, get ahead might, of ourselves. Might become a star. <laughs> uh, it's in my interest that Assassinovich becomes a star because I predicted it. Uh huh. We've known about Svitolina's makeup and pedigree for a while now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's no surprise that she should win this title. She's still very young, and she has a whole lot of results in her bag to push her forward in 2018. She's absolutely somebody to watch to be a first-time slam winner, mm. right? And yeah. It's at the point where anything she does, and no matter who she beats, it's not a surprise at this point. Right. Because she is she's that good. And her record against top 10 opponents is very impressive. Now, guess who's back? Guillermo Monfils. Guess who's back again? Right. <laughs> <laughs> He was back in Doha with new a new Instagram account. Gael is sort of making over his public image, his social media accounts, and he's starting the year afresh. Is I, that a word? Yes. Okay. Afresh. I kept seeing on Twitter that Gael had purged his social medias. <laughs> or social media, I said. That's already plural, right? Yes. He'd purged his social media accounts of post that he's made from way back when i saw somebody say something like well let me screen caption this before gal gets rid of it something from (laughs) way back in the day Mm. and the tenor of that was he's doing this because he's making one final push in his career to kind of maybe take things more seriously Mm. and take advantage of the the landscape and the vacuums and the canyons <laughs> the chasms, the craters <laughs> on the ATP tour, right? Mm. Which that's all speculation, that's hearsay. But here he is in his first tournament of the year, his first tournament since missing all that time in the second half of 26, 2017. Got to get my years right mm. here. And he win- he wins right away. Kudos to him. I wonder how much of it was watching his compatriots win Davis Cup this year. And was there any FOMO from that? Seeing, you know, his friends, his countrymen have such a joyous moment. He's been part of this very deep Davis Cup team for years and is now basically on the blacklist. He's, you know, fighting with Yannick Noah. He won't be playing, I don't think, in the future. Um, 
But the flip side of that is he had extra time to rest because he didn't play. He did. But watching these guys win and then go on vacation and have all this fun, I wonder if he felt left out. I mean, I I would. Wouldn't you? Speculation, dear <laughs> right. sir. But I think if Gael Monfils looks at the ATP and sees Dimitrov as the number three, sees Alex Zverev way up in the top five, Dominic team, he must be thinking, why can't I do this too? He He's just as talented, if not more, than these guys. He's a great athlete. Why can't he do that too? We thought that what we assume is a, a new improved iteration of Gael now we thought we'd seen that in the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. He had that great summer with DC, played well in, in Toronto, and made the semifinals of the US Open in that crazy match against Djokovic <laughs> with the rope-a-dope stuff going uh, yeah. on. And uh, maybe maybe this is where he's at now. I'm, I'm pulling for him. You know, I picked him as my comeback player yes. in the last episode. So have at it, gal. We talked about... Svidalina win in Brisbane, the male titleist in Brisbane, was none other than Nick Kyrgios. Look at Nick Kyrgios. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm here for Nick doing some things mm-hmm. at the moment. At the moment? <laughs> at the moment. Check back with me in a couple months to see, based on how many things he's actually done and to whom. Mm. <laughs> uh, but he, he beats Dimitrov in the semifinals. Coming back from a set down. It was a second straight match he'd come back from a set down to win. And then in the final, he beats Alt Ryan Harrison <laughs> easily in straight sets. And uh, how satisfying was that? That was so good. I mean, let's, let's pause this for a second with Kyrus and just, just drag Ryan Harrison here again. Because he's out here. There are these highlight videos going around where he's calling uh, players assholes and uh, German pieces of shit. Really? It's like, it's his base impulses. We Mm. all have impulses. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I don't say horrible things under my breath when I'm at work or in my head, but to just be blurting them out as if you have no control. Mm. Stuff like that. That's just, that's crazy to me. That you have nothing about you, if that's the case. <laughs> Back to Curious. Mm. Well, Nick was just not having it. He wasn't about to be distracted by Ryan's extremely long bathroom break or sitting in his chair when it was time to get up and start the set. Nick was just not about to let that thwart him at home. And our Twitter friend Frith, who was basically at Brisbane the whole week, said that the Australian crowd was dragging Ryan pretty badly. And man, I would love to be in an Australian crowd, period. But to watch them cheer against somebody who's playing their hometown favorite and someone they already don't like, like they're predisposed not to like, that would be an experience and a half. I don't know that they're predisposed not to like him. But they would respond in the moment appropriately. (laughs) (laughs) This might be more appropriate for the preview episode, which we're going to record on the weekend. But with respect to Kyrgios and his chances for the Australian Open, we've seen now that he can get up for all the big matches. Mm -hmm. We've seen that he can beat pretty much everybody. He was asked, (laughs) this week in press, he was asked what he thought about the top 16 seedings that Mm -hmm. they're going to be reverting to. 
come next year. Right. Right? And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, we'll get great matches earlier on. The top players, they'll have to be on their game earlier on. They won't be coasting through the first week <laughs> mm-hmm. as much as they did before. And if I were to beat one of those, they were like, well, you're like 17. You'd be possibly having to face the top players. You might have to play Djokovic. He's like, yeah, and I'm undefeated against him. <laughs> and he's like, and then I can take his spot. I can snatch his wig. Right. And then have an easy first week myself. <laughs> wow. You know, I mean, like, he's the type of player who would thrive under that environment. Uh-huh. It would be better for him because... Quite frankly, what he struggles with in slams at the moment, well, yes, there's the injury situation. Mm-hmm. It's hard for him to stay healthy with his hip stuff and all that stuff going on. But there's also the 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 factor of what we perceive to be motivation, right? If he can beat Federer, if he can beat Djokovic, why can't he get through the a much lower ranked player mm-hmm. in the first mm-hmm. week of a slam? And that's that's going to be his challenge. To get up for the first week of a slam. And people were saying Harrison is a dangerous opponent for someone like Nick because he'll go out there and beat Djokovic but could lose to someone like Harrison who's playing well. Harrison is but top he, 40 he now. proved us wrong. You know, Harrison has earned his stripes for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying Nick would be vulnerable, more vulnerable in that situation to compared to someone who's higher ranked. Yeah. The final event is a Hotman Cup, which was won by the Swiss team. Uh, you could say adorably or annoyingly, hashtag Benderer, <laughs> <laughs> depending on your point of view. Mm. Team Federer and Belinda Bencic. And they defeated the German side of, I said that like a, a football yes, <laughs> football thing. They defeated the German team of Alex Verve and Angelique Kerber. Mm-hmm. Which was more like a 25%, 75% thing. Kerber dragging Sasha through. That's what we kept hearing. I didn't didn't watch it, so I can't say specifically. Mm. Belinda Bencic, man, she is coming for the top 10 again. She has been plowing through these ITFs and challengers. She's done it the the unglamorous way. She's back up to 77 after re-entering the game at number 318. And man, like she's playing extremely well. Like to me, she is the story of the Hopman Cup, possibly more so than Federer. It builds on the end of her year last year. Mm-hmm. It kind of went un- unnoticed in a lot of parts and very much under the radar because when most folks considered the season to be done, she was out here winning three tournaments. Right. And now she's back in 2018, much like Gerges at the end of 2017, winning again. Mm hmm. Angelique Kerber is another person who, well, unlike Benchish, has completely turned her career story around. What do you mean? Well, at least for these past two weeks. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> we'll I was like, are we, are we really making such large proclamations based on right, right. a week and a half? But Angelique Kerber came into Hopman Cup happy, excited. She was having fun. People remarked that she was playing well. And... Here she is in Sydney taking out Venus Williams in three sets, which is not really something she did much of in 2017. But not a departure from the rest of her career. That's been a good matchup That's for her correct. previously. Yes. This has been one of the runaway narratives in the first two weeks of the season, insofar as we can have runaway narratives this early into a season. <laughs> Angelique Kerber is back. I'm part of that because I said that 
last time that she's somebody that I expect to play better this year because she's that good, mm -hmm. right? As always, I would exercise caution in not getting too far ahead of ourselves. Right. She did lose a set to Venus. She did lose from... She lost the first set from 5-3 up to lose it 7-5 to Venus mm -hmm. in that first set. So it's not without blemishes. Her good start to the season, she saved match points in her first match in Sydney against Shavashava. Mm -hmm. That could have gone easily the other way. But we saw this at the Hopman Cup where we got reports that she was in much better spirit. She was speaking more positively about her game. We know she has a new coach. And uh, maybe those those close near misses that she's able to turn on its head and keep progressing will be good for her. You know, mm. but it's still too early to tell. But this is one of uh, the things to look at so far. As for what piques my interest in this uh, little tidbit that we tacked on with Kerber and Sydney, which is still ongoing. We're kind of avoiding current, current results at the moment. Mm -hmm. But to give the listeners a little bit of info as to what's going on with Venus, because that's of interest to me and to a lot of our listeners, Venus, she came back, as I said, from 3-5 down in the first set to win that first set. Fought to hold serve early in that second set, fell down a break at 2-3. Broke right back for 3-all. So at that point, it was 7-5, 3-all. And it was still very much in her control, mm. the match. And from that point on, she won one more game. Kerber won the final two sets, 6-3, 6-1. And uh, at the start of the third set, Kerber served, and Venus had love 40 to open that third set and lost that game. And Venus just com completely lost her serve in that third set. But what I, what I take from that result is that, one, Kerber is playing much better. We talked about that. But two, it's not, what I saw from Venus was not alarming. Okay. She was still able to hit pretty routinely 170-something kilometers on her first serve. She touched 180 a couple times. What's going to be key for her is endurance and being able to maintain a good percentage on her second serve. Mm -hmm. Because that's what really deserted her in the third set. If Melbourne plays like it did last year, where the court is fast, then that can only benefit Venus. The other thing that I, I found, even in her first match, with all the rust that you'd expect, is she's still continuing her retrieving in ways that we hadn't seen before. Mm. Like, you expect her, because she's older and slower, to not be able to stay in the points as long as she did before. But shes it's something that she's continuing to improve on. So many times I saw her being a, a totally defensive position and hit a not just a looping backhand to get back in the point but one with serious top spin to then push Kerber back and that would then get her back into the point mm -hmm. and uh, that's something that she's still she's still doing and it gives me encouragement you know like I didn't expect her to win this match honestly and I didn't really want her to go too deep into this tournament because this is the week before the Australian Open right it starts on the weekend on Sunday so I really did not need, as much as Venus would have wanted to win this tournament, <laughs> I was not here for Venus going too deep into this oh, tournament. Oh, no. No. And so my hope is that this was enough practice. Three sets out there, getting the repetitions in, that this is, it's good for her going mm -hmm. into Melbourne. And the idea that Venus at this stage is still learning and looking to improve on parts of her game, 
after 1,000 weeks in the top 50? <laughs> Literally. Yeah, 1,000. That's amazing. And more than we can realistically hope for from anyone. And I'm here to tell you that Venus is playing very smart tennis from mm-hmm. the ground. Mm-hmm. Which has been uh, a knock on her throughout her career. One that was really misinformed. I would say there is more of a stubbornness with Venus. There was a hesitancy to adapt when she had the tools to adapt. Okay, fine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But my point is that Venus is playing seriously smart tennis from the ground now. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I'm enjoying it. We saw it all last year, too. Some other great performances from week one of the year. Sasha Vickery of the United States had basically the best year of her career or the best year you're <laughs> just be- all about getting best, ahead of yourself i know right the episode. best week of her career so far reached the semifinals in auckland beat lauren davis and agnieszka radvanska radvanska just beat kanta in sydney so you know she's she's not in bad form sasha vickery man really just impressive performances last week and then 18-year-old Aussie Alex Diemenauer. He is, is that how you say it? I believe so. He mm-hmm. is uh, He is the breakout so far in yeah. the first couple of weeks. And if you thought that that was a, a fluke last week in Brisbane, he then he comes to Sydney and he wins his first match against Fernando Verdasco in straight sets, right. bossing him around the place. <laughs> After beating Milos Raonic last week. So let's talk about Health IQ, our sponsor. They're a life insurance agency, as we said at the top. Mm-hmm. They basically get better help to get better rates for health conscious people. So that includes, you know, athletes, vegetarians, vegans, tennis players, obviously. They take you through a quiz to kind of show that you are health conscious, or you can also track your progress on an app. Mm-hmm. And this is the crux of their whole business model right the quiz Mm. because it then is able to weed out the people who are actually health conscious right (laughs) right and the other thing is they use you know if you want to get technical if you're into insurance they use a a mortality model that's specifically geared to their customers that takes into account things that go beyond bmi and start factoring in age and and all these interesting data points Mm mm-hmm and when you're when one of the thought processes for us when we were deciding whether to take on the sponsorship was, well, what are people saying about Health IQ? And it's it's a company that's really well reviewed in all mm-hmm. <laughs> facets of the internet, yeah. pretty much. You'd be hard pressed to find a really bad review or a bad situation that even still wasn't dealt with publicly by Health IQ. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, we encourage you to go to the website, which is healthiq.com slash bodyserve, which is our specific landing page. Uh-huh. Or if you speak to an agent, use the promo code bodyserve. And that will unlock special rates for you, potentially. 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 <laughs> so check it out. And even if you don't think that you're in the market for life insurance at this moment, at least do us the favor to support the podcast <laughs> of, you know, filling out the quiz, get a quote at least. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be morbid, but you are 
in the market for life insurance. <laughs> Always. Do you got a loved one? Look out for your family. It's not because, about you because you'll be dead. Like you, you don't want to be left high and dry when somebody's right. six feet under. Right. You know, you know, you want to at least take a European trip on on in their name wow. when they're gone. Wow. So encourage your family <laughs> or you to check out Health Like You. A few, let's go through our et cetera's. Kind of some things that happened this week that we want to talk about. Marion Bartoli, as we said, is planning on coming back to the game. Gave a fascinating interview to uh, French, uh, French journalist Sophie Dorgan from L'Equipe. And thanks to Mark Nixon for translating us translating for us very well and for the record mark we were we had this written down to credit (laughs) (laughs) before we went yes he complimented us and then dragged us in the same tweet Mm. you can go check the twitterverse (laughs) for that interaction but uh for what uh, it's worth whether it means anything we had every intention of crediting and sourcing and in addition, we intended to plug Tennis Translations because it is quite a service that is being given to the English-speaking tennis world. It is. And now I don't even want to plug it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, those of us who do not speak French or other European languages do owe a debt of gratitude to Mark. Uh, the, the translation was very fluid and readable and and I mean, the interview itself is fascinating. It's something that's timely for us because Marion gives great insight into the reasons for her comeback, which was a segment that we did a couple episodes ago, mm-hmm. telling people to mind their own goddamn business and stop telling her what she should do because <laughs> the reasons for her comeback are her own. And right. she made them known in that interview. Mm-hmm. And that's something that so many of us would have missed entirely had it not been for this translation. So thank you. And yeah, I'm... I don't want to give away the, the lead to to the Bartoli interview, but she did reveal some very interesting things about the past few years of her life since retiring. Clearly, a lot of fans were concerned about her health in the past few years, and uh, that's something that she addresses. I think it's it's remarkable how, what's the word, how sort of straightforward she is about what she expects from the comeback. Mm-hmm. Like, she she's not coming back to be ranked 80. It's like, no. if she said, if she is not beating women in, say, the top 15 to 30 in those first few weeks. Or not being competitive. Right. Like, if it's a 6-1 loss in the second. If she's getting she's, killed by, yeah. by the top 30, she's not interested. Like, she's not going to stick around to, to barely make main draws in Grand Slams. She was asked about why Miami. She's picking Miami as the tournament to come back at. Why such a big event? Why not? And the the interviewer used a question, used the example of, say, Andre Agassi, who went and played challengers to get his ranking back up. And she was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not 16. I did that when I was 16. Like, I want to play on the big stages. Mm-hmm. And I, she's earned that. Right. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, as you said, her directness is so refreshing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's totally in keeping with what we expect from Bartoli, but there are so few athletes, like in any sport, who speak that bluntly. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a special mention of 
Bartoli and the way she spoke about and so matter-of-factly about her weight issues and her appearance and the reasons for that. I don't, I don't really feel like talking specifically about that. Yeah. I'm going to encourage you to read, if you speak French, read the the L'Equipe interview or, or the translation. We'll link to both on the Podbean homepage. Uh, but there are... There are a lot of reasons why Marianne was struggling physically in the last few years. She was going through some things, mm -hmm. a lot of things in her personal life. And let this be a word of caution and a learning moment for folks. That when you look at these women, these athletes, and women in general, and make off-the-cuff, snark, nasty comments about their appearance, one, it's totally out of line to begin with. But in this specific instance with Bartoli, like there's almost always so much more that you do not know. Now, here's something that I really want to talk about, because if you are a listener of The Body Serve, you know that I find the... You live for the bad doping ban excuses. I do. The stories that players concoct to address the ITF or WADA when they're charged with a doping violation. I live. I live. Thank you, Tomas Bellucci of Brazil. <laughs> so this one the itf recently re uh, released their ruling the whole document he tested positive for a diuretic for a banned substance in september 2017 hasn't played since the u.s open i think there was some speculation about whether he was serving a silent ban i didn't know about that until this now well, folks were actually speculating that. Apparently, yeah, apparently. At the back end of last year? Mm -hmm. I mean, people more in the know about probably South American tennis were speculating. Okay. Um, I mean, these are the things that I, I literally do not have the space in my tennis life I to notice. Some things you just miss, you know. So, Tomas Bellucci was charged in September with an anti-doping rule violation for this diuretic that showed up in his test. He admitted his violation but did not accept the it's a voluntary suspension and therefore was allowed to still compete he didn't but he could have competed while while it was under review right while he presented his case and while the itf investigated and I, I just want to make a point here that it's my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong to the listeners because absolutely this is not something that's my forte mm. you know i try and read as much as i can but it's something that's very dense for me the, it's, the varying it's confusing moving parts of the itf and wada and the tennis doping scenarios mm. right but folks were saying that oh my god like here we go with the itf after they said they were going to be transparent with no more silent bands and mm -hmm. here we are again another silent band right and it's my understanding that the way the process works as it's set as it's set up is when they come to Bellucci and say, well, hey, do you accept the voluntary provisional ban? And he says no. Then at that point, once he says no, it, it still has to be kept silent, not necessarily on, on their part because they're covering something up, but that's just the way the process works. Mm -hmm. And that if he had accepted it at that time, then it would have been made, made public. Yes. Um, so, but they said they don't do silent bans, mm -hmm. but what you're getting at is that it was an effective silent ban. Yeah, in effect. Yes. 
unless he decides to go public and say that he's being railroaded by the ITF or something, by virtue of him not com choosing not to compete and the ITF not publicizing what happened, it's a silent non-ban. Well, where we're being <laughs> right. a little bit tripped up here is that it's your understanding that he could have still played once. Well, it says very once. clearly in the decision, therefore remained free to compete pending resolution of his case. And then he didn't compete. So right. the fact that he, him, he didn't compete makes it seem more like a silent ban. Mm -hmm. Now... So they released the ruling. He, like Sharapova, bore no significant fault or negligence. That's a quote. Because it was his first offense, the punishment wasn't huge. It was five months. It was backdated to when, basically, when they charged him. So he will be free to compete right after the Australian Open on January 31st of this year. Right in time for the South American swing. Now, we have not gone over my favorite, favorite part. Part of his case was that he gets these, quote, bespoke vitamin compounds, which is a marvelous turn of phrase. It's a very hipster thing to use the word bespoke, which originally referred only to men's tailoring, right? Like, Yeah, I just... Yes. I don't know if Thierry Cote still listens to the podcast, but he is, I believe, a professor at York University mm -hmm. who had listened to the podcast at some point. And I just saw on his social media, his Instagram, that he was just at a bespoke tailor. Really? Getting some serious discounts in the junction. Fancy. In the junction. Of course, in the junction. Mm -hmm. Now, I I really appreciate the, the sort of hipster bohemian uh, <laughs> way of Aesthetic. applying the word bespoke to something that's not tailoring. Well, so, what exactly define bespoke for us in this context? Well, in or this, in any context. In this context, I believe it just means these vitamins were being concocted from scratch. Uh, in and a, so, in a tailoring situation, it would be bespoke because all these materials are being used in house to make clothes from scratch. It's like couture. It's unique. Okay. You know, it's unique to you. Tomas was working with a biochemist and. A doctor and a pharmacist and whatever to create these unique personal vitamin compounds bespoke okay in a, in a word f for himself for only himself they required mixing in a pharmacy from scratch and somehow a banned substance worked its way into his vitamin compound without his knowledge so this is his argument so uh, the itf said yes we believe you because i mean they really always believe you. It worked its way into tortellini. It worked its way into, you know, your therapeutic use exemption, which was denied. It, I mean... So would you say that Kathy and Jimmy, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Bette Midler in Hocus Pocus were making a bespoke potion? Uh, if you'd like to to go there, I guess. I mean, I'm no, I'm not an expert in in bespokeness. <laughs> the point is, I loved that they used that terminology, and I also just I found it unsurprising, but continually disappointing that the ITF seems to just believe every story. And I'm not about to get sued and say that I don't believe Tomas, but. Uh, there comes a point when the ITF has to decide, do we want to be taken seriously on anti-doping? And if you don't, oh well. 
But it it just seems like are there prevailing financial interests for them to remain lax on the anti-doping program? And am I being unfair? It's always best to follow the money. Mm -hmm. What I find unseemly about this whole situation is the discrepancy in the ways players of a lower profile are are treated with respect to Mm -hmm. doping. Mm -hmm. And I say that in terms of how it's and this is in in a way more so on the on the side of the fans and the tennis media to say well blue cheat's not that big of a deal or to not treat it as seriously as a more high profile suspension because he's he's just Bellucci. Mm. And we kind of saw that with Irani doesn't get the, the same coverage and I I wonder what the role is or the thinking is from the ITF when they they're dealing with players across a wide cross section of rankings. Right. You know, are there right. internal conversations about well, how are we going to deal with Maria? Are they salivating at having to deal with Maria because we can make a big example out of her, which is one of the arguments. Right. And because then that can then give us street cred down the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ITF was rough with Maria. They were. And WADA scaled it back. And we've seen them be lax in subsequent cases. We have. Uh, and I, I just don't, there's no way to, there's no, there's no checks and balances with their decisions. Well, you know, like you well, say, we're not no, really able to see it. No, you yeah. say like, well, he was taking this bespoke compound vitamin thing. <laughs> I'm not trying to be funny here. I know it's just it's hilarious. Okay, they say in the official ruling that he was taking this thing, and subsequently after their investigation, they've accepted it. Right. What was the the investigation? Did they speak to the chemist? Did they speak to the pharmacist? Well, they do typically Did they speak to the doctor. They do typically outline that in their decision. Now, we've talked before, players with more money may have access to more sophisticated ways of avoiding anti-doping regulations. And that's been very clear in other sports. Of course, they can stay ahead of the doping tests, as you taught me. And then I I sort of learned on my own as well. (laughs) I I taught you something? Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I mean, it's just... To me, to release a press release like this makes you sound damn silly, is what I think. It just seems to me that the ITF needs to to rework its way of dealing with these things because they, they almost never come out looking above board. Right. I mean, like, did a player test positive for a banned substance? Yes or no? Sometimes it is that simple. A lot of times it's not. We've talked about as well that it's it's... It's so complex. And there are a lot of banned substances that maybe shouldn't be banned or are not mm-hmm. performance enhancing. It's my understanding that part of what was tested for here was a masking agent, which for me always signals serious red flags. Because of masking agents... And then... that's what was found in Irani's sample as well, uh-huh. which it makes that whole situation ridiculous, in my opinion. We are armchair Monday morning quarterbacking of course. this whole I mean, thing here. We can only read the information that they provide to us. And I and until we get more specificity, more mm-hmm. details, and more understanding of how this whole process works, we're just gonna be left in the dark and this whole process is going to be one big mess. 
I'm going to continue to enjoy it, obviously. You do you, boo. All right, let's race through the rest of these, etc. Mm-hmm. Bernard Tomic is out of the top 100, right? He did not qualify for the Australian Open. He's languishing somewhere. <laughs> uh, that sounds very luxurious. I'm just going to try and drop a Mariah song title mm-hmm. in every episode. Please do. Several times. He initially said he wasn't going to try to qualify, but now he is. Yeah. Right? So that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, Australia has Nick Kyrgios playing well. They have Ash Barty playing well. <laughs> They've got Alex Diminar playing well. Stozer is back. Dasha. Yeah, there's endless Aussie players to keep a track of right now. Mm-hmm. And so Bernard said today that in response to not being given a wild card into the Australian Open, he said rather glibly that, well, I've never really needed anything from them to begin with, so I'm not surprised, nor do I care, or something to that effect. <laughs> well, you know what? You uh, do you, boo. You and thank you. you for all those wild cards in the past. Did he say that? No, he did not say mm-hmm. that. But there was also speculation that he was going to be appearing on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and taking time off from tennis. Oh. that show. Did that show ever uh, air in the U.S.? Or is I, it just like a British no, it definitely, Commonwealth? It thing? definitely did, I think, but it's, it, didn't it really... survived in mm. Australia. Man, they love like celebrity Big Brother and stuff like mm-hmm. that. That doesn't really work in the US. See what had happened was. Oh. This was something that was on the agenda for the last episode in our heads. We had forgotten <laughs> to put it on the actual physical agenda. And even in the midst of recording last episode, you were long-winded about something. I had it in my head and then I responded wow. to something you were saying. And then I forgot, we paused, and it's like, there's something I need to talk about, and I can't remember. And then afterward, like, damn, mm-hmm. this Pat Cash. Pat Cash? Uh, he's so nasty. Like, this was so disgusting. It doesn't warrant a whole segment. He was playing some legends, right? Some exhibition or whatever. I do not know what exactly it And was. he rubbed his sweaty-ass head on the body of a female lines person. I mean, we've talked about how disgusting it is in practice for these lines boy, lines women and the ball boys and the ball kids or whatever to be handling these towels to begin with. Oh, yeah. In regular matches. And so apparently when he could not have a towel at his ready disposal, he was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to create a a fun moment here. And I'm just going to wipe my sweaty brow <laughs> on the shoulder of this woman's clothes. That was so disrespectful and gross. He thought it was he was being real cute, like it was funny. I would have taken my ass off that court and gotten into the shower. Like, that is so gross to me. You think that wouldn't have been a defense if that woman had smacked his ass <laughs> in court? <laughs> like pepper sprayed him? I would like some lawyerly <laughs> advice on this. All right. Maria Sharapova has been announced as the participant alongside Roger Federer for the Australian Open Draw Ceremony, a role typically reserved for the defending champions, Mm -hmm. which Roger Federer is. And we'll tie this into our next note, bullet, on our agenda. Serena is out of the Australian Open. She's withdrawn. Officially, yes. Officially. So she's not playing. And so there is no defending women's champion at the Australian Open. And so, Craig Tiley, <laughs> in his infinite wisdom, he has, they have announced way ahead of time that it's going to be Sharapova and Federer doing this draw. We've talked previously that 
while it's the uh, the the draw with respect to the next gen fiasco last year, right? And mm. how awful and misogynistic and sexist and sexist and just terrible that fiasco was. And part of the reason why it was such an unforced error is because nobody really pays attention to the draw ceremony. Unless right? something crazy happens, right? Exactly. Like tennis Twitter and folks who follow tennis like they're starving in the Sahara Desert. They are streaming the draw ceremony, right? These are mm. the people who are really interested in this stuff. And so you're not really... I wonder how much is there to be gained for having this much of a hullabaloo about the draw ceremony, right? To the extent that you're going to put Sharapova in the position to be at that ceremony. In Serena's stead, at the event that she tested positive for <laughs> Meldonium two years ago. Yes, tennis is so ridiculous. Right? It's, it's like, crazy. I do not have the band bandwidth to be upset about this or mad. It's just funny. His, I mean, Angelique Kerber could do it. Uh, Venus Williams, the defending runner-up, could do it. They're only two, I mean, they're only like, two active Australian Open women's champions. Right. Serena Williams, who is not active at the moment, and mm. then Angelique Kerber. And Kerber was entered in Sydney, right? So unless Kerber made it all the way, or she could still make it all the way to the end of the tournament, she would be unavailable for this draw ceremony. Oh, right. Okay. Which is something you you could play by ear feasibly to say, well, what mm. are we going to do? You know, see who shows up. Venus has lost. She's now available. Did you see how much fun she was having in Sydney mm -hmm. doing everything to promote that event? Like, she is the beaten finalist from last year. Who better to show up to that event in Serena's stead than her sister? Why not um, Yvonne Gulagong-Kali? Because yeah. she, now that Margaret Court is boycotting over in Perth, Yvonne can finally take her place as the queen bee of Australian tennis. Let her do it. While Margaret is out on the sea catching some crabs. Oh my god. <laughs> That headline was too much. Uh, I, yeah. Mm. <laughs> or, you know, use a young Australian. Give them something fun to do. Yeah. Showcase your talent. There's so much to do. So many options that could have worked had they exercised a little bit of caution, a little bit of good sense. and Creativity. Yeah. Because if this is a case of, well... Sharapova star power, we want to make the most of that. A draw ceremony is not that situation. Yeah. You know, like nobody really cares. Like people are going to watch the tournament regardless. Exactly. Uh, whatever. So like this is just, this is a, a big unforced error. I'm not going to use it as, an, an ex, as a, a situation to pile on to Maria, deservedly or not. It's entirely to do with the Australian Open. And just making mm. a complete mess of this situation. On a sad note, Andrew Murray has undergone hip surgery, which he revealed on his social media yesterday. It was pretty quick from, from the message saying he was still thinking about surgery mm -hmm. and finally confirming that he wasn't going to play the Australian Open. And now he stayed in Melbourne and uh, worked, well, sought out one of the world's leading athro, ath arthroscopic... <laughs> Can you tell I'm not in the medical field? Arthroscopic hip surgeon. Just a hip surgeon. Okay, fine. <laughs> but that's like where, you know, little camera goes in. And, uh -huh. Yeah. Two things. We learned 
from the reporting that apparently a whole bunch of British journalists just showed up in his hospital room. (laughs) Yeah, which is totally not surprising. (laughs) Uh, To then write and disseminate the story. To anoint his feet. (laughs) And uh, the first bit is that Andy had said, well, I'm going to reassess the situation, fly back home. And it turns out maybe that decision had already been made. I don't know Mm. if it was like an overnight decision to then stay in Melbourne and have the surgery. But the the surgeon that he's been dealing with and did the surgery is somebody that he's been consulting for a long time. Okay. So it's not like he was, well, I don't really feel like making this flight. Let me go call up some hip surgeon in Melbourne. (laughs) Well, This is somebody he's been consulting with for, for some time. And Andy has made it clear that he expects to and hopes to come back at his highest level. And one of his main motivations is so that his daughter can see him play tennis Mm -hmm. and do what he does for a living. Right. At an age where she's able to remember it. So we go from last episode to being completely... Oh, he also says that he hopes to be back for Wimbledon. Apparently the time span for... The grass season is his goal. Yeah, apparently the time span for recovery for this type of thing is... 13 weeks, 14 weeks. And I saw, I wish I could remember who it was that said this on Twitter, but I saw something today that it was, somebody was saying, oh my God, like the span of a week of an Andy Murray fan where you feel like life is over. It's the end of the world with Murray not being able to play the Australian Open. And then a week later to be thinking, oh, he's going to win Wimbledon this year. (laughs) (laughs) He's not usually this dramatic. (laughs) Well, we hadn't been given much access to Andy, and he's giving all the access right. now. So uh, let's hope. You know, we're fans of Andy, like him a lot as a dude. Hope that he makes a full recovery and can come back and play the grass season. But if not, come back when he feels fully ready. And shout out to Courtney Nguyen, who tweeted that we really miss Andy. We hope he comes back soon because he's the one dude who can do a Natalie Portman in press. <laughs> to check all them hoes. She didn't say hoes, but, right. you know. It was implied. About the the rampant sexism. Because Andy mm-hmm. is that guy to call you out in the moment mm-hmm. when you step a foot away. He around. is that bitch. Mm-hmm. Who caused all that commotion. <laughs> Conversation. Conversation. Speaking of, Rafael Nadal is reportedly, these are still rumors, may play sleeveless at the Australian Open. And I am really excited i am i could not care less what seriously i you know you think you know someone no you know this about me i do not like tank tops i don't like men in tank tops wow okay fine well you're gonna have to explain yourself to a lot of listeners i know i'm I'm not the only one who feels this way i am pumped and enjoy it if that's your thing enjoy it i shall there was something very interesting about this whole situation because you know tennis twitter has the receipts they they know what's up <laughs> and it's been 10 years since rafa played sleeveless on a tennis court which he did for the majority of the first five six years of his career if not the entirety five six years that would make his career like longer than it was no no 2003 when he was okay, a, a kid it's only oh i guess it's yeah 2008 now. yeah okay uh-huh i was thinking it's like 2014 don't check me, boo. <laughs> uh, and they were saying that it's curious that it stopped in 2008 because that's when we first started hearing all these 
rumors and accusations, really. Mm. Um, which the fact that he has never been caught doping uh, render them at this point salacious and unfounded and libelous. Right. Right. And if you are ballsy enough to sue someone for saying that you dope and then win, like put your business all out in the public, like that would be remarkable. Mm. And maybe this is the full circle moment because people are pinpointing 2008 as a time when those accusations started mm. to when he stopped playing sleeveless so that he would true. cover I mean, the muscles because at that time he was a young man and he started as an 18 year old yeah. as a French Open champion with these incredible muscles you know and that's well, where that stems yeah. from that's and for that, a tennis player it's unusual and as a young man men develop older yeah. so I mean so my, I'm I'm for it no you're you're cutting me off here man <laughs> like this is where this started and so I'm wondering now if on the back of the Bachelot decision if he feels buoyed to then maybe come back full circle to this sleeveless because he's like you know what you come for me and see what happened hmm. well know? he was actually he was going to wear a sleeveless in 2014 and he couldn't because he was injured that's those receipts mm -hmm. right there yeah okay last one on the etc we got to move along eugenie bouchard is now outside of the top 100 you know I'm surprising myself because I'm not even happy by that. Um, I think it'll be good if Jeannie can enter some challengers and work her way back, like pay her dues, get her game back together, and not just coast. And that's it. That's all I'll say about that. I just watched her lose to Sabalenka, and my God, her serve is an almighty mess. Like some of these faults... There was one sequence where she caught her serve, didn't bounce it again, didn't bounce the ball again, tossed the ball, and the serve hit the bottom of the net. And then she double faulted. It was, it was like a total, total disaster. Mm. She had 12 double faults, at least in that match. But still, it was a 6-4, 6-3 result. It was mm -hmm. close enough against somebody who is one of the, the rising stars of the WTA. Right. And my hope for Jeannie is legitimately, we've we've talked a whole bunch of shit about Jeannie on the show. <laughs> we live in Canada. We've railed against the the many different things that come along with Jeannie Bouchard, right? But it is it's entering sad territory. Before she made Grand Slam semis and finals, I was kind of standing for her before she took off. Mm -hmm. At the start of this podcast in 2015, she was somebody I talked about a lot. You know, and so I've been on this journey with Jeannie the entire time, up and down and round and round. And I'm at the point now where I, I really do want her to do well. I think it could be a blessing in disguise, you know, not getting direct entry in a lot of these tournaments now, because this will give her an opportunity to reassess, uh, possibly change her team up, change her training, mindset, whatever. But I mean, obviously things are not going well right now. You don't make two Grand Slam semis and then a final back-to-back-to-back to back to back without having some game and some talent. Mm. And so, good luck, Jeannie, is all I'm going to say. Are you ready for your quiz? We didn't tell folks you were taking a quiz this right. entire time. What is, what's the quiz about? The quiz is about WTA records. Okay. And a lot of them have to do with active players. Some of them have to do with all-time records. It, uh... 
it might not be terribly easy, but you know, you've got some tennis acumen. Okay, we shall see. Question number one. Venus leads the all-time list of Grand Slam appearances with 76. That's almost, that's 19 years worth of consecutive Grand Slam appearances, for the record. (laughs) Not that she did that, but that's the equivalent. Yeah, yeah. So she leads the all-time list of Grand Slam appearances with 76. Name the five other active players in the top 10 of that list. Okay, Um, Francesca Schiavone. She is number one. Uh Uh-huh. Um, we got, um, Serena. Yes. Svetlana Kuznetsova. Yes. Those are the top three. Skivoni three, okay. Serena five, Kuznetsova nine. So, sorry, what was the record? The record 76. is 76. She's got 76. Mm-hmm. Um, Maria Sharapova. No. Active players. Who are some old active players? No shade. Um, oh, Yelena Yankovic. No. And so that concludes your responses oh, to really? question number one. Oh, shit. You got three out of five. Okay. The two you missed, a little bit sneaky here, Patty mm-hmm. Schneider. She's active again. Stop. Yep. That... <laughs> mm-hmm. And Virginie Rizzano. Fuck out of here. She's not active. Question number two. <laughs> Don't be pressed. This player, having played in every Grand Slam main draw since the 2004 Australian Open... 56 slam events mm-hmm. leads the active list of most consecutive slams played. Her streak will come to an end at this year's Australian Open. Yelena Yankovic. Correct. <laughs> there it is. Number three. Behind Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova, this player has won the third most matches at the French Open among active players. Um, behind Serena and Maria. I've, I don't know. I feel like it has to be um, maybe Svetlana. Correct. Oh, great. Serena's won 60 matches, Maria 53, and Kuznetsova 52. Wow. Question number four. Seven active players have won at least 20 WTA singles titles. Mm-hmm. Name them. We're looking for seven players seven. Who've won who won have 20? won 20 WTA singles um, titles. There is... Well, obviously, Serena and Venus, Maria, uh, Caroline Wozniacki. Yep, those are the top four. There's Victoria Azarenka. Correct. There is Agnieszka Wawanska. Correct. And 20. I mean, 20 is a lot. Vika, Um, Aga, and this last person are all tied with 20. Hmm. Um, Patrick Vida? Yeah. Oh, oh my you god, I them, got all of you them? You named them seven in a row in descending Stop. order. Stop. That Just is shut down the quiz that, right now. <laughs> that is the height of your existence right there. <laughs> That's the most impressive thing you've ever done. <laughs> and he's taking a sip of his champagne right now mm-hmm. too, right? His pink champagne, real ghetto. I found my tea. <laughs> Question number five. Name the top three active players on the all-time WTA matches played list. Played. Um, These are active players. Yeah. Oh, so those people count who are, like, surprisingly active? Like, <laughs> like Patty and Virginie? Uh, <laughs> matches played. Um, well, I mean, let's let's go with Francesca again. Yeah, she's number one. You said two? Three. Three? Um, 
Probably Serena, because she won so much. Incorrect. Mm-hmm. You have one more guess. One more. I'll go with uh, Svetlana again. No. <laughs> Second, first, well, we're looking for three players, the, the top three active players, right? Yeah. So the top three active are Schiavone, Schneider, and Jankovic. And on the all-time list... Oh, so it was Schneider, yeah. who was supposedly active. On the all, She is active. <laughs> on the all-time list, Skivon is 4, Schneider 5, and Jankovic 10. Oh. And what I realized from researching this quiz is that Pat Schneider is up there on so many lists mm-hmm. on the WTA. So 1 out of 3. Number 6. Who won more matches on the WTA tour? Aranja Sanchez-Vicario, Virginia Wade, or Ivan Gulagong? Oh, um, I want. I feel like Arancha played for a long time. I'll say her. The answer is Virginia Wade. Okay. You know, I had a feeling it might be her. You did? Yeah. Number seven, in a similar vein, who won the most career clay court matches in the history of the WTA? Conchita Martinez, Chris Evert, or Arancha Sanchez-Vicario? Hmm. If this one is a trick question, I'm going to be upset. But it's got to be Chris Evert. It's Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Are you serious? I am serious. How is it not Chris Ebert? Chris is the queen of Roland Garros. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that she necessarily played all of those clay court events. Remember, back in the... I mean, I don't have the facts to back this up, but mm-hmm. my assumption is she didn't necessarily travel as much as a lot of those American players did back in the day. All right. Well, which is to say a lot of American players didn't travel as much back in the day. Right. Oh, well, after that triumph, I'm doing pretty bad. <laughs> Let's turn it around. Number eight, Venus Williams, Billie Jean King, Kimiko Date, Francesco Schiavone, and Martina Navratilova are the five oldest players to win a WTA singles title. Mm-hmm. Organize them from oldest titleist to youngest. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I can't remember the last time Kimiko won a title. Okay, I mean, let's just say so Kamiko let, let, as the oldest. Let's just let, let's let's talk this through. Let me write these so you, down. Exactly. Who are the five? Tell us back the five that I just Kimiko, told you. Kamiko, Billie Jean, mm-hmm. Martina, yeah, Venus, and and Francesca. Oh, okay. Um, Francesca's like old. Francesca's the same age as like Venus. Thirty-seven. They're both thirty-seven. Uh-huh. Right now. Um, okay, so I feel like, um, I think Francesca was the oldest, wasn't she? Just tell me one, two, three, four, oh. five, and then you'll get a point for oh. which position you land in, correct or not. Start from the top, the oldest, and it's go It's going to be so wrong. Just tell me. Kamiko, Martina, Francesca, Venus, Billie Jean. Zero of five. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. That's like impossible. Billie Jean King, 39. Kimiko was 38. Martina was 37. Schiavone was 36 last year in mm-hmm. Bogota, I believe. Yeah. And then Venus at 35. Oh, shit. You know, I, re- I really could have gotten one point because I switched Francesca with but somebody But really else. and truly, obviously, the number one is Billie Jean. Really? Yeah. Is that obvious? It's really obvious. It's confusing because, like, Grand Slam title is oldest and, uh, you know, it's confusing. Okay. Number nine, Martina Navratilova with 177 and Pam Shriver with 106 are first and third on the all-time list of most doubles titles. Doubles, yeah. 
Who is second with 112? Oh my god, I really don't know. Think back to that to the Martina era. Somebody who is like um, in one of the Think back to the the original 9. Really? I'm going to give you a hint. That does not help. Come on, man. Like at Rosie Casals? Yes. Okay. Number 10. Name the youngest and oldest ever WTA world number ones. I'll give you an extra oh. point if you can tell me their age. The youngest was Hingis. Correct. She's got, she must have been, uh, I think she was just 16. Correct. And then the oldest is, is Serena. Yes. Isn't it? And she was. And at the time, she was 35. Correct. Okay. So you'll get two points for that answer. <laughs> so out of 10, you got one, two, three, four, five. You get. Do I get a quality point? A bonus <laughs> point? So wait, there was two for the number 10. So two, three, four, five, six. Six points. And then what is three fifths plus one third? Do that quickly. That's, that's really rounded down um, to just one point. Are you serious? You're trying to make that's me rounded add down, fractions? That's rounded down to one point. So you get seven out of ten. Okay. Which isn't bad. No, not bad. I mean, it was it was kind of a hard quiz. It was. I think you did better than I thought. <laughs> um, thank you, I guess. Do you want to talk about the Golden Globes? You force me to watch this goddamn show every year. I, I do. I come mm-hmm. home from work early on Sunday. I was even, even able to go do grocery shopping before coming home, which I normally mm-hmm. reserve for my day off on Monday, Tuesday. I thought, it was like, oh my God, I have all this time off now. And then it's like, so what are we going to watch tonight, Golden Globes? I, you knew it was going to be on. Oh. Anyway, Cinderella. The Golden Globes are usually the drunk Oscars, right? They're, they're like a yeah. more raucous version mm-hmm. of the Oscars. I will say it gave us Mariah meeting Billie Jean King. Wow. Which was wow. a seminal moment in my life. Mm-hmm. The thing with the Golden Globes this year is that they were obviously clouded, well, shadowed, by a lot of accounts of sexual harassment and abuse coming to light in Hollywood in the past few mm-hmm. months. And so it's been uh, it's been depressing, but it's also been exhilarating for a lot of activists because I think for the first time, maybe ever, the public at large is taking this sort of thing seriously because the casting couch has been a joke for many, many, many years yes. in, in Hollywood. And people are starting to grasp how horrifying this is and how women in entertainment have things in common and can sort of show solidarity with women in other socioeconomic classes who experience very similar abuses. Two things that I was looking forward or looking out for ahead of this broadcast was we'd gotten wind early in the week that this Time's Up thing was happening. This movement was happening, this hashtag, Mm -hmm. and that it involved 300-plus women who were actresses, agents, people in the business. Really big names. Pretty much anybody you could think of except for Lena Dunham. Right. She'll be there for her picture, though. Um, Yeah. And then the other thing was, okay, fine, this is happening. Everybody's doing it. Uh, you even have Mariah who is out here tweeting about it. A, yeah. she doesn't tweet much, and B, she doesn't get much. And she, she is doesn't get very political like very so often. so apolitical. Yeah. yeah. And so the thing I was looking out for was how are these white women going to make space for women of color mm-hmm. who really are the ones who have been doing the work with this movement right. from the start, 
from the Me Too movement, etc. And so when you have the red carpet with people being introduced and the award show speeches and what have you, how were women of color going to be incorporated into this movement? Those were the two things I was yeah. looking for. And in a lot of cases, I'm going to defer to people of color to to commentate and critique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a lot of, well, this is kind of awkward or this is uncomfortable. But there was also a lot of, wow, this person in particular decided to let their, you know, the, the whole thing was a little bit weird, right? Like they're escorting an activist, mm-hmm. but like <laughs> as their plus one. But I think there was a way to do that. And Laura Dern and Michelle Williams in particular did that in a way that allowed really like discussions that we don't ever, ever, ever hear on the red carpet into people's living rooms. The red carpet is not the place that you typically find these meaningful discussions happening. It's a place where you find, who are you wearing? Right. Let's make some off-the-cuff sexist comment about you being a woman or blah, 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 blah. You know, right? Mm. We saw Deborah Messing call out E and their salary discrepancy with men and women. Right. Right away. That was one of the first things that you saw. And to your point about how Laura Dern and Michelle Williams were the ones who did it best, it's a it's a standard that shouldn't be so hard to meet for these actresses, these white women mm-hmm. in Hollywood, because we see it all the time. When they appear on the late night show, one of these late night talk shows or Ellen or whatever, they're there not to shoot the shit and have a great time. They're there to promote something. Mm-hmm. And so we see it all the time where they'll be having a little bit of banter and they're like, well, yeah, and actually my CD comes out today. Make sure you get it. It's called this. I'm in this movie, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and they're able to pivot to promote themselves at every turn in in seamless ways. And so if if the Me Too and the Time's Up movement is something that they're legitimately interested in and having the voices of these women of color heard, then they have the skills and the practice to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, I don't want to be cynical about what you were saying about Laura Dern and Michelle Williams. I'm sure they're wonderful. And we've seen how people like Lena Dunham can be the total opposite, right? So it's not a given. Mm-hmm. But these women are equipped to be able to do it. Well, you're right. A lot of it is skill and and sort of having the the deft touch of setting it up and getting out of the way. Mm-hmm. And so Michelle Williams is someone who came with an activist and let her speak. And when the interviewer tried to ask Michelle Williams questions about her stuff, she repeatedly pushed the the spotlight onto the woman she came with, right? Um, so, I mean, there is some awkwardness in this idea of allowing someone to speak or ceding the spotlight to someone else. But what I was really encouraged... But that's about, the way to be an ally in that situation. It is, yeah. Because we're not getting a, around the fact that you are white and blonde and beautiful and, and you have this platform because of those things. Because you're talented, but also because you are those things. Um, but there is a way to use it in a way that's productive and political. And I was encouraged by the Time's Up kind of mission statement that they published last week or the week before that acknowledged very clearly, uh, and I quote, we recognize our privilege and the fact that we have access to enormous platforms. So this is 
extremely important. Acknowledging that actresses in Hollywood have have been able to sort of drum up the rage because of who they are. They're, uh, it's, it's sad, and unfortunately people haven't cared for many, many years. But it's hard to see domestic workers, hotel cleaning persons, uh, restaurant workers sort of getting this sort of press, right? But the what seems and I hope is a concerted effort to reach out to women of different socioeconomic classes, that was reflected in the Time's Up statement. And I think if this movement gets past awareness raising, which I, I think there's a real effort to do, that it can do some real good. Power in numbers, right? This right. is uh, an overwhelming weight of backers. Mm-hmm. These are, I, I encourage you to go and look at that list of 300 women. It's, it's from Carol Burnett to Mariah Carey to Lena Waithe to Eva Longoria to Meryl Streep. It's, it's everybody. Mm-hmm. But it's also in the, in the first paragraphs of the statement, partnering with Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. Mm-hmm. The, so it's an alliance of women farm workers in the United States, basically. So reaching out to women who experience this every day that we don't often hear about, this, this is a way to build coalitions. This is a way to, to sort of pivot from performative wokeness and make it something real and political and productive. This is the way to make this moment count. That it yeah. can it can trickle down from Hollywood and the ways in which we've seen these sexual abuse allegations play out, right? Mm. It's been with people in people in directorial positions, producer positions, Harvey Weinstein who runs these big movie companies, right? And that's one facet of the problem. Mm -hmm. And the challenge then is to, if we are to effect a societal change, a true cultural change, how do we have that trickle down from the Hollywood, and I hate to use this, the Hollywood elite, you know, who are still rich and socioeconomically privileged, to the people who cannot afford to report a sexual harassment instance because they have to work and they can't lose their job or their second job or their third job because they have to feed their kids Mm. who literally do not have the time the security the money to to pursue anything like that right like we've i mean we have worked in the service industry and seen this stuff happen yeah so we are complicit in the same way that that other hollywood actors are complicit right Mm -hmm. like you hear the men say, oh, yeah, everybody knew about that. Like, re- but, but none of you said anything until this very yeah. moment where it was safe to say something. And as much as we give women in Hollywood the leeway in judgment to say, well, you knew this, you didn't know that, whatever, it's, it's not my story to tell, it's your story to tell. These are the women who have the economic resources and the class standing to be able to bear to bear it on the chin mm-hmm. for these women who cannot right oh, like yeah. this is where and i mean this is where they will make this movement count 
where their yes. sacrifice can truly make a difference. Because for all the struggles that they went through for decades with the casting couch situation and the jokes and the what have you, and they legitimately and seriously suffered. And we've seen accounts mm. of these to no end, right? This is where they can now make that suffering count for other women because they're in a unique position to help other women. Right. Who cannot, for survival purposes, speak for their own oppression or speak a rail against their own oppression. Can we talk about Oprah for a second? So sure. the night was chugging along. It was getting a little dry, to be honest. I think when people went up to give their speeches, a lot of people weren't really sure what they were allowed to say or what they were expected to say. Um, I don't think any man made a statement no. about Time's Up. Or, Which was really fucking disappointing. Yeah. I don't know if men are afraid of saying the wrong thing or feel that it's not their place or simply don't care. If you feel it's uh, <laughs> not your place, you can you can say that. I know that Gary Oldman doesn't care. No. Because holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I liked him when he was Sirius Black, and then I read some of the shit he said it's about really Mel Gibson. Bad. Like, so bad. this dude is basically like Steve Bannon. Like, tell me the difference. Mm -hmm. Re like, his beliefs are really hideous. It's so bad. Please go look it up, because I don't want to get into it. But, so Oprah. Oprah gave... Uh, an absolutely stirring speech. We, she's spoken for many, many years about being a survivor of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And I mean, look at Oprah now, right? It spurred a lot of our career choices, acting wise, mm -hmm. from of, of Color course. Purple to Beloved. Like it's informed her view of life. Right. So now Oprah is the personification of the American dream. She's the capitalist queen of the world. She's a mogul gave this incredibly stirring and political speech, which I felt a lot of speeches lacked, even even ones that sort of acknowledged what was going on. Mm -hmm. Oprah's was overtly political in a way um, and just inspiring and and looking at a representation and, and who she's speaking to and who needs to be spoken to and... Um, what I found disconcerting was that the only thing we could talk about afterward was, oh, Oprah's going to run for president or she should run for president. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't want to be a party pooper because it's a fun thought experiment and it's also like a funny joke. And if if she does, like if she takes it seriously, that's great. Like, I'll support her, but it's just interesting to me that this is the first thing we talk about before talking about the content of her speech yeah like this is sort of the cable news horse race aspect of this is how we as covering politics as right civilians have been trained yeah that's part of it and also it part of it is a respite for non-right folks mm -hmm. people who are not on the right of the political spectrum right. of the united states like this is a respite the idea of oprah in that moment on the back of giving that speech to be able to think of her as the person who, after the TV president, will then become the rightful TV president. Mm. After the one who showed that we're, we're going to upend the political history of America, you know, and right. the way presidents are elected in such a negative, vile way, to then have... If you were to say, well, if there's going to be a TV president, it would, be, it would have been Oprah. So she's going to correct. She's going to be the corrective. Right. 
Right. So that's and, but that's part of it, and the the respite from Trump. So you're not correcting the process and the conditions that allowed Trump to be elected. You're just electing like the right one, mm-hmm. right? Like no, but listen, the better version. I've seen a lot of people say, "Well, Oprah of 2020 is great and all, but can we go back to electing people who are qualified?" And I think what the mm. last 15 years has shown is that the people, and I. I don't say this lightly because I don't want people to align me then with the drain the swamp people. <laughs> but the people who are elected in politics, because it's so fractured and gerrymandered and fucking batshit crazy, those people who are elected are not qualified to be president. There's a very mm. small percentage of actual working politicians who are qualified to be president. And we've seen time again that those who are qualified are rejected. Right. And I've... so maybe... Maybe this is a gateway. The one benefit of having Trump being president, hopefully for not too much longer, is that it opens up the world of politics to to people from outside that realm who can still do good work. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that Oprah could do good work as a president. Right. Because and, Trump's lack of qualification, uh, to me, is not the main issue here. No. Uh, one of the big issues is that he hired amateurs as well. Uh, clearly, he hired supremacists, he hired right. old white men. I mean, Steve Bannon, who was coined a kingmaker after one election. I mean, Carl Rove, you are not. You know, like, he hired his kids, Jared. Like, <laughs> just people who are totally not mm-hmm. seasoned in governing, right? If if someone else, another president who was roundly unqualified, mm-hmm. like Oprah, really, do you really think she would hire all those losers? I mean, Gail would be her no. chief of staff, but that would no. be it. My my point in saying that is there's room for both discussions of the wonderment and the the fantasy of Oprah as president in 2020. There's room for that. And mm-hmm. there's also more room to be able to discuss what she was talking about. Because what Oprah showed is that she's multi-layered and has multi-fa- she's multifaceted. There's mm-hmm. more to her than one thing. Right? Right. And, like, she has been out here for how many years talking about these issues? And people finally are starting to take notice in large numbers. Um, it was just annoying to me, mm-hmm. to be honest. I think we're wrapping up here, but shout out to Natalie Portman, who hasn't always been a favorite of this household. But, man, you'd <laughs> be hard-pressed to find a drag with more precision than what wow. she perpetrated on those directors <laughs> and the Hollywood foreign press at the Golden Globes. And how it was so perfectly placed. Mm -hmm. She didn't say it on the red carpet. She said it as Emily Nussbaum from The New Yorker said on Twitter. It was so powerful because she said, here are the all-male nominees. The moment before, we would see shots of five successive male nominees. And they would have to react in however way... And you'd have to see Ron Howard's reaction standing beside her. So you... You see these directors, um, and the pressure is on them to react appropriately, or <laughs> right? And whatever they do, we're going to read into pretty deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, Natalie Portman has had it. Like, she is out here speaking her mind lately. And, you know, I'm here for it. And before we go, we had... A whole segment planned about TV shows, which you we're going to have to we delay. We keep putting this off. We're we never going to talk off. about this. We're n- we can't do it today. We're all, we're going to run into ninety minutes probably on this episode mm. or close to. So we'll keep that probably for February. But 
before we go, and in keeping with that TV thing that's coming, mm-hmm. and the Golden Globes that we just talked about, fuck Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I can't even get into it. I that's wrote, all we're going to say for now. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can find us on at the body serve on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me, James, at Elliot JMR on Twitter. And Jonathan at tennis underscore John. And we will uh, we will catch up with you very shortly. We're going to and... be recording in another four days for the Australian yeah. Open preview. So we're we're going to be rapid firing 2017. It seems. 20, this is 2018. 2018, my okay. God. It's my a new God. day. It's a new dawn. Is that a Celine song? It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's oh. A, it's a song that you hate. I do hate that song. <laughs> Sorry. I like Nina Simone a lot, but I really hate that song. <laughs> anyway, we're we're saying goodbye. Till next time. <laughs>